All right, this evening we're going to look at verses 17 to 18 of Zephaniah chapter 1. You have the outline there before you. If you haven't picked one up, there are still a couple at the back of the room. We begin with a suggestion that some have made that there is an inclusio around this first chapter. Now, I'm going to ask you to kind of quickly scan. Well, let me ask it this way. How do we determine whether or not an inclusio is present in a biblical section, pericope, chapter, as the case is here? How do we go about thinking about answering that question? What do we look at? The beginning and the end. Okay, so it may not be exactly the first verse, but it may be part of the beginning. So let's take a look. Let's begin by looking at the end, verses 17 to 18. Just scan them briefly. And as you look at them, then go back to the beginning of the first chapter and see if anything jumps out at you, which may in fact either support or not support this suggestion of an inclusio. Even in your English versions, you may be able to see something. I'm looking for words which are almost exactly alike. Marge? There's a complete end or a complete, complete the, the face of the earth and the inhabitants. Okay, now let's take that uh, earth uh, <clears throat> word that you spotted. In fact, we do see that word uh, where in uh, the end of the the chapter. All the earth will be devoured. Okay, anywhere else? Let's go back to the end. Let's begin with the end first. The whole world will be consumed. We're looking for the word earth. Oh, and all the earth will be devoured? We got that one. All the inhabitants of the earth. All right, now let's go up to the top. And what do we see there? Face of the earth. Face of the earth, verse 2. Is that all? Uh, I will cut off the face. Let's stop. Let's, let's look for earth again. We're looking for the, we're looking for the same words. And Inclusio uses the same vocabulary. Go ahead. Go ahead, Marsh. Just the end of verse three. Yes, so we have the face of the earth uh, or the earth in verse two and three. So we have the earth twice in verse two and three. We have the earth twice in verse 18. Is there any other word as you scan the end and the beginning, 17, 18, and verses two and three that appears? <clears throat> Completely, it's, it's, it's actually uh, not the same root. Man, yes, man or men. You'll notice men in verse 17, and you'll notice man in verse 3. In fact, man in verse 3 is listed twice. All right, now, uh, what do you recall... Uh, when we began this study about the unique nature of 
the way Zephaniah begins, verses 2 to 3. Do you remember why that was particularly unusual? Very good, Kay. It's an opposite paradigm, a reverse creation paradigm. And how is that present there, Kay? How do you see it? It starts with man. It starts with man. And beast. And beast. And goes backwards from the way the creation was ordered. So the backward order in verse 3 of man, beast, birds, and, uh, <coughs> uh, birds and fish is the opposite of the order of creation in Genesis 1. And so what Zephaniah is saying is that God is going to bring about an uncreation, a reversal of creation. Now, it's interesting the vocabulary he uses there. In verse 2, when he talks about all the earth or the face of the earth, he uses the word in Hebrew, adamah, adamah. Now, you can hear a word that you're familiar with it, with in that you know, Hebrew word, Adamah. What do you hear in Adamah? Adam, very good. So that is his word for man, actually, in verse 3. So once again, he is emphasizing this back to the creation. He's even using vocabulary that rehearses the character. Man is Adam, and he, he dwells on Adamah. He dwells on the face of the earth. So the associations are reinforced, namely that he's beginning with the beginning by reversing the order of creation. In other words, this judgment that is coming in verses 2 and 3 is going to reverse the created order. All right, now, with respect to verses 17 and 18, you notice in verse 17 he uses the word men or man again. Once again, it's Adam. Adam. But the word for earth in verses 17 and 18, and verse 18 rather, is different from the word for earth or uh, ground in verse 2 and 3. Here he uses the Hebrew word aretz, which means earth or land. All right, so. There is ostensibly an inclusio. That is, there is a vocabulary frame here which is dealing with man in his created state and man in verse 18 in his created state once again. So why why, uh, begin and end, why envelop, why bracket, why frame this chapter with creation at the cosmic beginning and man here at the end of this chapter with all of the world. Because this third chapter, or this last, I'm sorry, not third chapter, these last two verses are projecting the cosmic end of the earth. So he begins in verse 2 and 3 with the cosmic beginning of the earth, and he concludes with the cosmic end of the earth. He begins with principles of universality, the universal beginning of all, the universal end of all. He frames the chapter in terms of that protological beginning and that eschatological ending. 
In fact, he's going to fold the drama of protology and eschatology into itself as he reverses the paradigm. All right, now, um, let's think a little more uh, deeply about this. He's gone in verses 1 and 2 back to the creation, back to the inception of Adam on the Adamah, man on the earth. Now in verse 18, he's looking forward. He's looking forward to man, Adam, upon the earth or in the world, Eretz. He's looking upon man in the end of the world at the final, complete end of all things. Notice what he's done. Prophet Zephaniah has begun with a reversal of absolute cosmic finality from a protological projection of the eschatological end or an eschatological perfection of the protological beginning. Both of them reveal the absolute end of Adam on Adamah or Adam on Eretz. Now, this is a revelation to a people at a point in time. This is Zephaniah speaking to an audience. God, through Zephaniah, speaking to an audience at a point in time. 7th century B.C., as we know from the first verse of this book, namely the time of King Josiah, 640-609 B.C. As we then begin to assess the profundity of what he has done in framing this chapter in this way, we realize that the remote becomes emblematic of the proximate, or the remote becomes epigetical of the proximate. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> the remote eschatological complete end is describing the proximate end. Well, what is this proximate end? The proximate end is that which is described in verses 14 to 16. The proximate end is that which is about to come upon the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. The proximate end is 586 B.C. So you will notice what Zephaniah does. He frames, he brackets, he envelops, he places an inclusio between the remote from the cosmological beginning which projects the eschatological end to the cosmological end at the end of the chapter which, end, which, uh, which perfects the protological beginning, the creational beginning, and he sandwiches in between those remote prospects the proximate prospect of the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, the cosmic intrudes into the ethnic. The universal intrudes into the national. The international intrudes into the local. The far-off prospect penetrates, reflects, mirrors itself in the near-at-hand prospect. The eschatological profusion or the eschatological uh, insight of uh, Zephaniah here is quite remarkable 
insofar as he pulls the whole history of the universe into the beginning and the middle and the end of the first chapter of his marvelous prophetic work. All the way back to the protological beginning, all the way back to the creational inception, and all the way forward to the eschatological consummation. From beginning to end in all of human history, all of Adam's history, and in between sandwich what happens in one part of that history, namely the particular history of the people of God in the 7th century, 6th century B.C. All right, so there's a lot more in this frame than just simply a description of God's wrath and judgment. Is God's wrath and judgment coming in terms of cosmic beginning and cosmic ending? And that cosmic crisis is folded down upon Jerusalem and Judea and the Judeans, the Jews, going into captivity at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 586 B.C. Do you have any questions about that? You see the framework. You see the bracket around it. And you see how he squeezes or sandwiches in between that which is present before his own historical consciousness. All right. Now, what about the structure of verses 17 and 18 in detail? Verse 17 contains a hinge pattern, a pivot point. So as you look at uh, the text as you have it, let's see if you can pick out the pivot point or the hinge of that 17th verse. Very good, Randy. The word because signals the pivot point. Now, how then do the other parts of the verse line up around that hinge point? Okay, if we can think of a door hinge, because is the hinge of the door. Okay, what's swinging on either side of the hinge? There are two clauses on either side of the hinge which begin with a conjunction and. You will notice and I will bring distress. New American Standard translates the second line so that it should be and because it's the vowel or vowel conjunction in Hebrew. So it should have been translated consistently. And you will notice after the because there are two further conjunction clauses that begin with and and their blood, and their flesh. All right. He pivots the successive dual conjunctive clauses, and dot, 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 and dot, 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 because, and dot, 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 and dot, 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 and it's it's perfectly symmetrical. One and clause, another and clause, pivot point, Another and clause, another and clause, two and uh, pivot and two, two pivot two, perfect symmetry. Now you can't see it particularly in your English translation, particularly when the New American Standard throws you off and, and says in that second line, so that when in fact the Hebrew says and, but there it is. 
There is, once again, this symmetrical point, which theologically is the hinge of the dilemma. Because if you look at that pivot point, you see that why is God going to bring distress? Why is God going to cause men to walk as blind men? Why is God going to cause their blood to be poured out? Why is God going to cause their flesh to be like dung? Why? Because they have sinned. The pivot point is the precise point that hinges God's action with respect to the sin of his disobedient nation, Judah and Jerusalem. All right, so it puts at the center and and center point because and and coming out of the center point puts at the center point the very heart of the dilemma, the very heart of the rebellion, the very heart of the disobedience, the very heart of the depravity of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Josiah and following. Now, verse 18 also contains a recursive symmetry. What's that word recursive mean? Randy? You were going to ask me. (laughs) I'm the teacher. I ask the questions. Bob? Comes again. Comes again. means repeated. Okay, so recursive is a synonym for repetition. So what do you see there? In verse 18, a recursive pattern, something that's repeated. Marge, I'll come back to you on that. You should be primed for that. What's repeated in verse 18? You've already spouted it out one time. Dan, you got it? Well, I think it's perhaps it's repeating 17. No, I'm looking for repetition in verse 18. Go ahead, Marge. No? You mean just words that are repeated, mm-hmm. like earth and earth? All the earth. All the earth. Kal Haaretz in Hebrew. <clears throat> All right. In fact, if you look in the middle of your first page, I've got that in Hebrew, and uh, I got it transliterated for you, kal ha'aretz, which means all the earth. All right. So once again, we notice that within Zephaniah's style, there is this symmetry, this repetition, this parallelism. It's endemic to the way he writes. It's endemic to the way he thinks. It's endemic to how all the Hebrew prophets think and the Hebrew poets Parallelism or symmetry or repetition is unto theological meaning, theological profundity. All right, we'll talk about what theological profundity there may be there and be here in a moment. But we come now in the outline to 1, 14 to 16, focusing on what? What nation is, is featured or the object of verses 14 to 16? Anyone? Judah. Judah. And what city? You're on a roll. Go ahead, Kay. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And what date? Uh, 586 586 B.C. And what event? The Babylonian Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, the leveling of the temple. Under whom? Dan? He said Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody said Nebuchadnezzar. I I didn't see Dan's lips moving, but maybe, maybe he did say it. You mumbled it, okay. <laughs> All right. 
Now, the importance of 586 B.C. It's a date that you ought to know. I've said this before. It's a date that you ought to know like the date of your birth. It's a date that you ought to know like July 4, 1776. It is that important. Why? True. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that such a big deal? Send them in the end. Why is that a big deal? Cast out of the promised land. Why is that a big deal? Well, is it because, as you said, that that proximate is a picture of the, of the ultimate? There's a, a man that's thinking, all right, very good, yes. Because what is inherent in it is the projection of the eschatological final judgment. It is, in fact, the final judgment on the nation state of Judah the nation-state of the Jews. The nation-state of the Jews ends in 586 B.C. It is God's final judgment on theocratic monarchy that's over, that's never going to be restored. The Jews are never going to have another king. It's done. They were driven into exile. God said, no more, never again. And he said the same thing about the temple and reinforced it in 70 A.D. Now, that may shock your sensibilities. Because you're too premillennially oriented. However, that's exactly what's happening. Because after 586 BC, there has never been another king to sit on the throne of Jewish people. Never. And never will be again. Because the true king of kings has come. And we bow at his footstool. And he has the everlasting crown. And his kingdom will never end. Why would you ever want to go to another kingdom on this earth with another earthly king who's going to die and the kingdom's going to crumble and fall apart again? With King Jesus, you belong to a kingdom that will never end. With a king who will never die. Isn't that far surpassingly glorious? More glorious than ever Solomon's temple. More glorious ever than David or Solomon's or Zedekiah's uh, palace. More glorious than Israel, the land of Palestine. You see the point. The ratification of God's judgment upon the Jews 586 B.C. was a ratification of This is the end of your nation's statehood. From here on, from here on, you will always be an occupied people until 70 AD when I'll put the staccato on that matter. Now, Randy, you've been waving your hand around out there. I think I understand. Herod doesn't count because he was... He's an Idumean. He's an Idumean. Yes, he's an Idumean. He's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. Okay. All right. Now, what Dan observed when he made his comment, namely that within 586 B.C. we see the projection or the intrusion of the final eschatological judgment, we're seeing the final judgment of Judaism, 586 B.C. It's going to be repeated in 70 A.D., In other words, you might say it's phase 1, 586 B.C., phase 2, 70 A.D. 
or it's really 586 B.C. and 70 A.D. is just a staccato. It's just the exclamation point upon the whole process. All right, so that event is the crucial act of God's decisive judgment in the Old Testament, even as the exodus is God's decisive act of grace in the Old Testament. Great act of grace, exodus from bondage. Great act of judgment, destruction of Jerusalem. All right, so the relationship between 14 to 16 and 17 to 18 in Zephaniah chapter 1 is the relationship between that section which slides from the national, verses 14 to 16, Judah, Jerusalem, 586 B.C., etc. It slides from the national to the universal, verses 17 and 18. It slides from the local, Judah, Jerusalem, to the cosmical. So within verses 14 to 18, we have both the national destruction of of Judah, and we have the cosmic or universal destruction of the earth, of the world. He folds them together and weaves them back to back in this five-verse section of the first chapter of his prophecy. Now, in order to support our explanation of verses 17 to 18 here in chapter 1, Let's turn ahead for a moment to chapter 3, verse 8. And when someone gets it, please read it out. Zephaniah 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 8, please. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Thank you very much. All right, now let's notice. I've already placed the Hebrew phrase, which is telltale here. Uh, I've transliterated it for you. I've actually placed it there in the Hebrew characters. Uh, For you children, incidentally, if you're looking at it, you read Hebrew from right to left. You don't read Hebrew from left to right, like we read English. So you start with what's on the right-hand side with that uh, uh, funny symbol that's got a dot in the middle of it. It looks like a half circle or three-quarters of a circle. Okay, You start there and you move to the left. So you pronounce that call and you notice and you know how you get an A is from that little T underneath that first letter. That little T underneath is the vowel A. Okay. Hebrew doesn't have, Hebrew normally doesn't have any vowels. It's called the unpointed text. Okay. But about a thousand AD, a bunch of Jewish scribes got together and say, you know, one of these days we're going to forget how to pronounce this stuff. So we better stick some marks on the text so that we can put some vowels, so we know where to put the vowels in. So they added this stuff to the Hebrew text so that we know how to pronounce it. We know where to put the vowels. See, they can read their Yiddish newspapers and they can put the vowels in just by looking at it. Because they're used to the language, <clears throat> but we can't. And they were they were worried that someday they weren't going to be able to read the Bible and put the proper vowels in. So at any rate, that little T underneath that first letter that means the <clears throat> the vowel A sound. So call, and there you see it at, under next underneath the next two letters. You've got that little T sound, so you've got a double A. Ha aretz. 
the, the little triangle uh, three dots, that's a soft E sound. Okay, all right, so you learned a little Hebrew today. It is a fun language. It really is a fun language. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards says it was a greater language than Greek. He was right. He was right. It's a ball to work on Hebrew. It's really, really fun. Okay, all right. So you'll notice that that phrase in chapter 3, verse 8, is the very same phrase that he used in chapter 1, verse 18. And he used it twice in chapter 1, verse 18. All the inhabitants of the earth, all the earth. Kal ha'aretz. Kal ha'aretz. Twice over. So in chapter 3, verse 8, he's saying the same thing about what's going to happen to all the earth as he's saying at the end of chapter 1. And what is he saying in chapter 3, verse 8, which makes that clear? That he's going to destroy the world. That this is a universal destruction or judgment. What words jump out at you from that eighth verse of chapter 3, which support the interpretation of verse 18 being cosmic universally? The word nations and the word kingdoms. All the nations of the earth, all the kingdoms of the world are going to be devoured or synonymously with devoured, consumed or synonymously with devoured and consumed, swallowed up. Swallowed up in what? Fire. Ish in Hebrew. Fire swallowed up in the fire of God's wrath. So, in fact, we know that we're correct in interpreting chapter 1, verse 18, 17 and 18 together, to refer to the cosmic, remote, eschatological, universal judgment and destruction of the world because Zephaniah uses this very same language in 3.8 that he uses in 1.18. So he's interpreting his own verse. He's exegeting his own language. His scripture in 3.8 is interpreting his scripture in 1.18. Any questions? So we're on the right track with seeing this last part of chapter 1 as being a projection of the ultimate eschatological judgment of the whole world. All right, now something else we notice in verse 17. In verse 17, there are three metaphors. Now, how do I know a metaphor? What is a metaphor? All homeschoolers ought to know what a metaphor is. What's a metaphor? I, 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 Marge is not a homeschooler, but she's uh, Go ahead, Marge. It's kind of like you explain something by picturing it like something else. Very good. So what word am I looking for? Like. Yes, and how many of them are there? Three. There are three. So what are the metaphors in verse 17? Good. Very good. Thank you. What else? Good. Good. Very good. Right, so like the blind, like the dust, and like the dung. Yes, go ahead. What do you see the difference between simile and metaphor? Then? Uh, not not much, but uh, uh, there is a slight difference, and I had to go back and look at my books to tell you what the precise difference is. You, you caught me off guard. I'm sorry, I thought 
one with, without the light. Like that that's a that's a dark dungeon when you're talking about somebody's house, you don't say it's light and dark dungeon. That's what I thought, but maybe I'm wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You can point out my fault. My, my yeah, well, <laughs> yes, you, you got a big argument with all the commentators, too. Because I'm, I'm just simply following their lead here. <laughs> but, 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 but remind me about it, okay? Because I need, I'll need to rethink it. All right, now, assuming that we're the commentators and Denison working on the commentators are right, that this is a metaphor. Um, <clears throat> What What's going on here? All right, well, like the blind, aimless, obviously in the dark, blundering into danger, no light on their path, they can't find the goal, they can't find the mark, they're aimlessly blind to it. I want to come back to that part of the metaphor in a moment we talk about sin but notice what is included in this blindness it is more than just they cannot see it's an aimless lack of sight it's a blundering lack of sight it's a sight which can't find the goal of their life or what their goal what the goal of their life should be all right, now, the next <clears throat> metaphor, like dust. <clears throat> when Zephaniah says God's going to pour out their blood like dust, like dust, what echo do you hear? Why? Very good. Because we already established that there's uncreation. Very good. And, and what specifically? You've gone back to creation. Very good. What specifically? You're doing so well, Dan. <laughs> What's that? I need another lead. Man is created from the dust. Excellent, Bob. Exactly. So what does God say to Adam after he sins? Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. So he's going to dissolve into dust again. So like dust is a, <clears throat> uh, a remark about the dissolution of man's body. He's going to go back to the dust. It's the primal curse. It's the sentence to sin at the fall. So this judgment, which is going to come upon the cosmos at the end of the world, is going to return all flesh to dust, to its dissolute state, dissolved. Final one, like dung. Like waste. Like Refuse, like ordure, like repulsive offal. The corruptibility, the befouling state of human waste. All right, now, that last image is not particularly attractive, but nonetheless... It is a part of the curse which falls. So we'll look in a moment at what is behind that language, but for the present we move on to that verse 17 and the word for sin, which is in the Hebrew. And you already know what those little T 
T's underneath those two first letters mean. That's the A sound, hata. Hebrew is a language of pictures. And this is a great Hebrew word to give you a picture. What is sin in the Hebrew language? Hata. Because sin is missing the mark. Sin is missing the target. Well, what's the mark? What's the mark that you're supposed to aim at? Thanks, man. All right. Perfect righteousness of God reflected in the Ten Commandments. That is the mark. That's the bullseye. The bullseye is righteous obedience. Sin is to miss the mark. Sin is to shoot wide of the mark, short of the mark, or not even aim at the mark. A graphic image. When you sin, you don't hit the mark that God has established for righteousness, goodness, fairness, kindness. When you sin, you've come short or gone wide of the mark. You've perversely committed something wide of the mark or you've omitted something short of the mark. Sins of omission and sins of commission, wide or short of hata, the mark. All right, so Israel, or Judah rather, is at this pivot point in verse 17, accused of missing God's mark, not attaining the goal that he has set for his creature or for his nation creature. And since they have missed the mark, God's payment will be the judgment for that commission or omission or missing wide or falling short. And that uh, payment will be the sentence of death. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Thousands will die by the swords of the Babylonian army. Jerusalem will be judged. That's the point. That's the penalty of missing God's mark. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It will be raised. It will be leveled. Nebuchadnezzar will leave not one stone upon another. We've even dug out arrowheads from the destruction layer, Babylonian arrowheads from the destruction layer underneath Jerusalem. After the Six-Day War in 1967, when the Jews were allowed to get back into the, <clears throat> into the quarter around the Temple Mount, they uncovered those Babylonian arrowheads, which are still buried, in the char layer, three inches, three inches of ash, charred ash. That's how fierce was Nebuchadnezzar's destruction and raising of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. God will not miss the mark. You and I may miss the mark because of our sin. God will not go wide of the mark. He will not fall short of the mark. He warned Judah that he would not fall short 
of the mark of destroying them for disobeying his commandments and for violating his revealed will. There is nothing different about that threat. 586 B.C., 2014 A.D. It is the same reality. It is the same grim reality. It is the same true reality. God will hit a bullseye. He will not shoot wide and he will not shoot short. He will hit a bullseye with death and judgment and the fire of his everlasting wrath. He will not miss because he has warned you that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is his wrath. The wages of sin is everlasting hell and damnation. He has told you that. He has been kind enough to tell you that so that you may flee the wrath to come. You may escape the judgment. You may <coughs> avoid the target that God has set up for your eternal damnation. All right. In conclusion, then, with verse 17, God's judgment brings dissolution. That is, the dissolving of the body to the dust of the earth, adding to the dust of the ground, dust upon dust, dust into dust, But God's judgment brings as well what must be covered up, ordure, what befouls the ground, what must be buried, what must be covered up because it is unclean, what must be hidden over because it is foul, the dung of the earth and the human body being turned into that condition as that which will stink in God's nostrils. So, it will need to be buried as Jerusalem itself was buried under dust and ash. Three inches. Do you know how intense the heat and how much burns to form three inches of compacted charcoal? That is a furious, furious conflagration. And that's what the Jews experienced in 586 B.C., at least those who were killed within confines of the city. All right, any questions before we go to our break? Go ahead, Randy. Ordure, is that a French word for something? Yes, it actually comes from uh, French. <clears throat> it's a, it's a uh, legal, it's a, not a legal, it's obviously legal. <laughs> It's a synonym for dung. That's a romantic flavor to it. Yes, it's got a little bit of a French air to it. It's the same as offal. Offal, O-F-F-A-L. It's another word for excrement. Ordure, offal, dung, manure, all referring to foul things that we're done talking about. Count all things as such for the surpassing worth. Yes, yes, indeed. Because it 
all other things are foul in comparison to surpassing excellence of Christ Jesus. All right, uh, stand up, shake out your legs, take a break. Now to page two of the outline. And to the comment that some commentators have made, that verse 18 is describing the dissolution of the Assyrian Empire. Now, how does the Assyrian Empire fit into the sequence of world empires as we go through ancient history? Can I ask a homeschooler that question? Where does the Assyrian Empire fit in? Okay. They came before the Babylonians. <laughs> Correct. Now, when did the Assyrian Empire dissolve? When did the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and destroy the Assyrian Empire? Was that Nineveh? That's Nineveh. 612 is the destruction of Nineveh, though it's not the absolute end of the Assyrian Empire, but I give you an A minus for that. Okay. It's, it's, close, it's close enough that you're not far off the target. <laughs> the, the final date of the destruction of the Assyrian Empire is 609. That's when Nebuchadnezzar and that's when Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is crowned prince son. That's when they destroyed the final remnant of the Assyrian Empire. And it went all the way to the west, <clears throat> to ancient Haran, and made a last stand against the Babylonians. All right, so, yes, Randy? What was the last king of the Assyrian Empire? Uh, well, uh, the, the guy's name is Asher-Ubalit, Asher-Ubalit III. <clears throat> but he is the king in exile when uh, it, the, the, the remnant is destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, as he confronts Pharaoh Necho, who had come up out of Egypt, killed Josiah at Megiddo on his way up to Haran to reinforce the remnant of Assyria. Okay, well, um, this interpretation that's being advanced by this scholar, a couple of scholars, says that verse 18 is describing the collapse of the Assyrian Empire, destruction of Nineveh 612, final destruction of the remnant of Assyria 609. What do you say in response to that suggestion? Sound credible? Sound likely? Not the whole world. Not the whole world. Very good. Excellent. So the first thing that we note is this verse is describing a cosmic or consummate destruction, not a national or regional or proximate destruction. Okay? This is comprehensive, complete as the word is used. All right, now, there's another thing to note historically here. In the days of Josiah, who is the antagonist of Judah? Israel. Israel is long gone. Israel has been gone for over 100 years. 722 B.C. is the destruction of Israel. Who's the antagonist of Judah? Was it Egypt? In part. In part. But not because there's any conflict between them, per se. In fact, in the days of Josiah, Judah is fairly independent. And 
That's another reason that Josiah foolishly tries to stop Nico at the pass of Megiddo and is killed in the offing. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> uh, my point here is to observe that Judah was uh, fairly free and loose from Assyrian interference because from 640 B.C. until 609, until 612, Assyria was in a state of decline. You know the famous slogan of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? Well, somebody could write a book called The Decline and Fall of the Assyrian Empire from 640 on down. which means that they're preoccupied with their own internal collapse, with their own internal decay, with their own internal lethargy and apathy. In fact, they'd been exhausted by fighting civil wars within their own boundaries. They fought a four-year civil war between Nineveh and Babylon. that <clears throat> sucked the life out of their army and drained the vitality of their war machine. So by the time that the Babylonians decide to conquer them, uh, uh, coming up the Tigris and Euphrates River, the Assyrians are ripe for the plucking. <clears throat> okay, so it's really not appropriate to say that this verse is talking about the coming of the Assyrian problem because the Assyrians were never re- a major problem of devastation for is- uh, Judah in the times of Josiah, <clears throat> verse 1 of chapter 1. <clears throat> the long-term threat to Judah in Josiah's day and in Zephaniah's day, and in Jeremiah's day, and in Habakkuk's day, the long-term threat was Babylon, not Assyria. It's the coming of the Babylonians, that, or the Chaldeans, as Habakkuk calls them in the first chapter of his prophecy. It's that onslaught which is destined to uh, destroy the city of David and carry Judah into captivity. So this, this is... This is just uh, this is just a scholar trying to say that the only way we can explain this language of destruction is after the fact of the Assyrian collapse, so that the writer of this verse never could have projected the end of the world because he couldn't tell anything about the end of the world. After all, this scholar doesn't believe that this verse is inspired. He doesn't believe that God gave this vision or this language or this portrait to the prophet Zephaniah. Therefore, he has to reach back into history and say, yeah, it doesn't belong to the end of the world. It belongs to the end of Assyria because nobody could ever guess what was going to happen in the future. And after all, God doesn't tell the future. God can't tell the future. All liberals believe that God can't get over the chasm of the gap between time and eternity. If there is a God out there, he couldn't prophesy, he couldn't send a message across the chasm that separates time and eternity. So the Bible is just the religious ideas of ancient Jewish scribes. And it's only normative if it cooperates with our political, social, economic, and cultural agenda today. That's the heart of liberalism. Heart of liberalism is to read the Bible in terms of the fads of the modern day, of the fads of 2014, et cetera. All right. Well, uh, I know you didn't want to learn too much about liberalism, but to bring up this this, uh, interpretation and see why it falls on its face when we look at the text clearly. Text simply cannot support it. All right. Now, there's another thing that's interesting about this verse, that is verse 18. 
And I'd like you to turn back to Ezekiel for a moment. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. <clears throat> and whoever gets it first, uh, please go ahead and read it out. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. Keeping your finger in Zephaniah 1, verse 18. They shall fling their silver into the streets, and their gold shall become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion for stumbling. Now, is there anything there that rings a bell? <clears throat> As you read Ezekiel 7, 9, 19, rather, is there anything that rings a bell? With respect to, gold? yes, the silver and the gold of verse 18. Anything else? Unable to save. Mm, okay. What else? Mm, okay. Anything else? The day of the wrath of the Lord. Look at that phrase, the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the wrath of the Lord. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew of Zephaniah 1.18 as it is in Ezekiel 7.19. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What does it tell you? It's talking about the same thing. And what does it tell you? What does it tell you? God's behind this. It's true. What else does it tell you? Who's first? Ezekiel or Zephaniah? Who's older? Ezekiel or Zephaniah? Mark? Zephaniah comes first. Zephaniah is older. Ezekiel is what century? Sixth century. And Josiah and Zephaniah is what century? Seventh century. So Zephaniah is a seventh century BC prophet. Ezekiel is a sixth century BC prophet. Zephaniah, six hundreds BC. Ezekiel, five hundreds BC. Where is Ezekiel when he prophesies? Well, let's begin with Zephaniah. Where is Zephaniah when he prophesies? Jerusalem. Where is Ezekiel when he prophesied? Go ahead, Ben. He is in Babylon. Next question. How did Ezekiel get to Babylon? Go ahead, Ben. He got a free ride. Who took him to Babylon with a free ride? Who, who, who had the taxi? Nebuchadnezzar took him. What year did he take him? Don't quit when you're in bed, dude. <laughs> so we, we, we keep asking these questions, and you will, it'll one day sink, get into your head, and you won't forget it ever again. Five, 597 B.C., correct. And who else does he take at that time? Daniel. He takes Daniel. No, he does not take Daniel. He takes Daniel in 605. In 597, he takes Ezekiel and somebody else. The king. What's the king's name? Jehoiakim, N, not M, Jehoiakim. So he carries away Jehoiakim and the queen mother and Ezekiel and many more. 
So Ezekiel never prophesies in the promised land. Ezekiel never prophesies in Judah. He prophesies about Judah in Babylon. He prophesies about Jerusalem in Babylon. <clears throat> All right. Now, since Zephaniah is older, and since you see this language in Ezekiel 7.19, which is the same as the language of Zephaniah 1.18, what does it tell you? Ezekiel potentially had a copy of Zephaniah's prophecy. He knew the words of Zephaniah. In other words, Zephaniah is not without reflection elsewhere in the Bible. I said at the beginning of this series that Jesus refers to the first chapter of Zephaniah as well in one of his comments in the gospel. Well, here's a place where in the Old Testament somebody else is referring to the language of Zephaniah and it is the prophet Ezekiel. Which means that the school of the prophets, even in captivity, still functioned in terms of maintaining the tradition of the knowledge of the prophets and perhaps even having copies of the scrolls of their prophecy. Okay. This remote or consummate day of wrath, which is mentioned in verse 18, is also mentioned again in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, God is storing up wrath for the day of his wrath, Paul says. That is a reference to the ultimate consummate eschatological day of God's wrath, which Zephaniah 1.18 is describing as devastating the whole cosmos, the whole earth. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, there's a description of the wrath of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. He is the glorified Christ. So the wrath of the Lamb is set aside for the great day of the wrath of the Lord. So the New Testament also projects this consummate day of God's final wrath and judgment when the whole cosmos will be dissolved, the dissolution of all the heavens and the earth. The whole universe will be dissolved in a fervent heat. All right, so we can summarize then that Judah's destruction is exegetical of what is coming on all the earth, on Kal Haaretz. Exegetical means it's an explanation. It contains within itself the, the, uh, the, the, the vision or the picture of what is going to come upon all the earth. This entire first chapter is about the coming wrath of God. Remember, we listened to Verdi's Requiem last week. We heard the Dies Irae section, the Day of Wrath section, which comes right out of the translation in the Latin Bible of verse 15 of Zephaniah 1. Dies Irae, Dies Ilia. This first chapter is about the Dies Irae, which is also a Dies Ex Space. I'll use the Latin again, ex-space, E-X-S-P-E-S. 
E-X-S-P-E-S. The dies irae is a day without hope, X space. But we began this study noting the bookends of the prophet Zephaniah's work. That chapter 1, which describes the dies irae, the dies X space, is balanced by chapter 3. The end of the book is the dies gratiae, the day of grace, which is the dies spei sempiternae, the day of eternal hope. Dies gratiae, dies spei sempiternae, the day of eternal hope. We don't want to lose sight of the balance. However, there is no hope in chapter 1. There is no expectation of any remission from this destruction that is coming upon Judah and Jerusalem. So we will go home this evening under the wrath of God, depressed and discouraged. No, we won't. We will not wait until chapter 3. We will see chapter 1 in the light of the person and work of our precious Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Because Christ Jesus draws you to himself and to his wondrous grace by your very realization that the day will come at last and that you will face the final things. You will face the final things reflected in Zephaniah's language here in the first chapter of his prophecy. You will face the final things of Zephaniah 1. Yes, you and I will, proximately, on the day of our death. Final things will be upon us on the day we give up the ghost. To whom shall you then go when your blood dissolves into dust? To whom shall you go when your flesh becomes like dung to be covered over and buried? To whom will you go when God marks your sins and takes aim in his wrath, which shall not miss its mark? To whom shall you go when neither your silver nor your gold will rescue Redeem, save, or spare you. To whom shall you go when the fire of God's eternal wrath is unleashed against you because you have sinned against the Lord? To whom shall you go? You shall go to the Lord Jesus, who will cover your death blood with his life blood. 
You will go to the Lord Jesus, who will raise you up from the dust of death at the last day with a glorious, indissoluble, incorruptible, and beautifully clean and a sweet savor in his nostrils body. You will go to the one who will transform your flesh to be like unto his glorious resurrection flesh body. You will go to the Lord Jesus who will change your dissolution and burial by resurrection reconstitution and he will disentomb the refuse of your body so as to glorify you with a spiritual body forever. You will go to the Lord Jesus Christ who will hide your sins in the marks and wounds which he bore for you and took in your place. You will go to the Lord Jesus, who became the target of the wrath of God on your behalf. And though you have missed the mark by your every sin, Jesus has never deviated from the bullseye of God's righteousness. And that perfect Righteousness, he graciously imputes to your pock-marked soul. He imputes that perfect righteousness to your pock-marked soul so as to mark you with his justification, to mark you with his forgiveness, to mark you with his grace and love to mark you with his mercy and peace. You will go to the Lord Jesus, whose riches surpass all the treasures of silver and gold, and in those lavish, all-surpassing riches of the abundance of his grace, rescues you, redeems you, saves you, delivers you because he loved you unto his own death on a cross. You will go to the Lord Jesus whose passage through fiery flames of his Father's just wrath leaves you unscorched, leaves you untormented, leaves you unscathed, not even the wisp of a smell of smoke upon you because he bore the fiery smoke of that terror in your your place. And he has done so as to present you faultless before his glory so that you can stand in his presence without blame.
and without deficit. Standing in an arena of no more darkness. Jesus will bring you to stand in an arena of no more death. Jesus will bring you to stand in an arena of no more dissolution, no more befoulment, no more fire, but ever more life. Life evermore in sweet, eternal union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is the other side of the Dies Irae, the Dies Gloriae. Any questions? Comments? Complaints? No refunds, you didn't pay none. Is there a is there a wrinkle from Zephaniah 3 put on what you just said? Not in detail. Because his focus in that third chapter in the uh, saving eschatology of the end of the third chapter is upon the Lord God who is king in the midst of his people with which comes all the benediction of the treasures of an eternal kingdom. So I am working off of the reverse imagery uh, because of the overall picture of this city of glory, king of glory, this arena of eternal and everlasting royal salvation. There is, of course, a reversal of the darkness here because you notice verse 12 of this first chapter. Zephaniah, as the Lord, <clears throat> takes his lamp, the light of his lamp, to search out Jerusalem and finds only darkness. That darkness <clears throat> ultimately descends upon the nation and upon the people. They're destroyed by the blindness of that darkness. They miss the mark of God's uh, glorious uh, invitation uh, by their sin. But that light motif, it's the other side of the darkness. Zephaniah himself is shedding light in the dark. He is a light bearer in the midst of a dark generation and a dark prospect. So his very uh, voice, his, his very words... His very existence, his very life is the reflection of the opposite of the message of dark cursedness that he's commissioned to bear. And that is so because you see his life of light is joined in union to the light of the world. Yes, by anticipation, by projection, 
by eschatological coming forward, by intrusion of that one who is everlasting light into his own life. He is drawn into the light of God in which there is no darkness, the light of the king who is God in whom there is no darkness. He's drawn into the light. And so in all the Christian and Jewish iconography, in all the paintings of Zephaniah, he carries the lamplight and shines it into the darkness. You see, he is a forerunner of Christ. He is virtually an embodiment of Christ. And that's the reason you can't neglect this wonderful prophet. You simply can't. Because he saw Jesus from afar off. And so you see Jesus near at hand. Shall we pray? O Lord, while we marvel and tremble at the realization of the final things that are upon the world, even as the creation is turned back to what was before the beginning, namely non-existence at the end, and are reminded that we will be turned back by judgment and final things at our own death. We prize, we lay hold of, we embrace, we lay our heads down upon the breast of the Lord Jesus who was able to take that wrath and finality from us because he has experienced it already in our place. All the final things, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, all the final things have fallen upon your son, our Lord, and he has taken them so that we may not experience them. Increase, O Lord, our love for him and the reflection of his work in anticipation in this marvelous servant, your prophet Zephaniah. Encourage our hearts. Let us walk in the light of the age to come, which shines from the face of him who is the everlasting light of the cosmos. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. See you in two weeks, Lord willing.